podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. How can I describe what it feels like when the visitors come? It's like explaining the universe to a toddler while the toddler is on fire. I know that's a terrible metaphor, but I guess it's also very true. A better way to describe it is hitting a deer on the road with your car. You're driving along at night in the country, surrounded by cornfields in early autumn. You know it's deer season. You know they are out there, waiting. When one pops up in your headlights, you get a quick look at its face, the green reflection in their eyes, and bang, you hit the deer. Then it's over. Knowing the likelihood of hitting the deer doesn't stop that strange, pulling feeling deep behind your belly button, that instant jolt of adrenaline, the fear. Always the fear. The fear is so terribly now. I started wetting the bed when I was 13 years old. That was around the same time the visitors started coming. Dad, being busy with the farm, and Mom with her soap operas. My parents didn't think much of it. It was also the 70s, and children weren't much of a priority back then. They bought me a mattress protector and were done with it. Maybe it was because you don't ask too many questions of what happens in a teenager's bedroom at night. I hated that mattress protector. It sounded like crunching potato chips when you laid down It was miserably hot and sweaty during the summer. Still, it was a part of my life. So were the late-night hushed fights between mom and dad, the empty beer cans in the hallway, the stop-ins from the social services lady, the bruises, the visitors, and the cornfields. These were the constants of my adolescence. And the radio towers. I almost forgot about the fucking radio towers. We lived on a farm out in the country where Dad grew corn and soybeans. Out my bedroom window, over the south field, were two large radio towers. They broadcast the local Christian station, 88.3 The Shine. I always thought that was a weird name. The Shine. Who the fuck is shining here? I surely wasn't. Those towers shone, though, like the beacons they were. Those towers stood over 700 feet tall, Red lights blazing around the clock, just outside my bedroom window. I swear I could feel the transmitter slowly microwaving my teen brain. They were decorated with various dishes and antennas pointed this way and that, like a Christmas tree in a secret government base. Very festive. The visits would always start the same. The red lights blinking in the black sky. On, off, on, off, on, off. The oddest smell would then waft from the field into my bedroom, even if the windows were closed. It was like sweet cardboard mixed with hospital disinfectant. Then I could always sense movement, small shadows at the wrong angles. The first time it happened, I thought I was having a stroke or something. I don't know how I knew what a stroke was at 13 years old, but that's the first thing I thought when the angles of the shadows started to grow and stretch around my room as I was trying to fall asleep one night. It was a Wednesday. I don't know how I remember that, but 
I guess that's the funny thing about paralyzing fear. It makes you remember things you wouldn't otherwise. Yes, Wednesday, just after 11 p.m. My bedtime was 9 p.m. at that age, but my anxiety always kept me up for a few hours, trying to solve problems no 13-year-old should be worried about, even if I did have the power to solve them, which I didn't. The first night, the angles of the shadows shifted, just ever so slightly. I don't think most 13-year-olds would have noticed, but ask any kid with anxiety at that age, and they'll tell you that we notice everything. Right after the angles changed, I looked to the only source of light in my room, which was my partially opened door, and to my horror, a new shadow started to emerge in the sliver of light that was coming from the living room, signifying someone was slowly moving toward my open bedroom door. I held my breath and clutched my quilt to my chin, unable to look away from the shadow growing toward my bedroom door. I was terrified to see what was on the other side, but even more terrified to look away. As I watched, my fear growing hot and acute inside my gut, my door began to swing slightly in toward me, and I stifled the scream building in my chest. As I watched, one slim finger inched its way around the edge of the door, followed by two more, and then slowly, ever so slowly, the side of an oversized gray head and an enormous black eye began to peer around the edge of the door and stare straight at me. I squeezed my eyes shut for a few seconds, and when I opened them again, it was still there, completely motionless and staring straight at me with that one nightmarish eye. It stared and stared and then the anticipation of what would come next was agony. It stood there for over an hour. For an hour, I was frozen in fear and engaged in a perverted staring contest with that god-awful visitor. I wasn't able to hold my bladder for very long, and learned that terror eventually takes hold so hard you become powerless to your body's reflexes. In that hour, I was reduced to breathing and swallowing, and everything else was far far beyond my control, even the thoughts that swirled around my adolescent brain. Then, when the visitor was done staring at me through the endless black of its eye, it slowly retracted its fingers. One, two, three. And then, just as slowly as it arrived, it retreated from my view. I didn't sleep that night, or very much at all for the next several years of my life. The visitors showed up intermittently for the rest of my childhood, and it was the same every time. It was always dark out, I was always alone, and it was always peering at me from around something so I could just see the one horrible eye, which made it feel more intentional and somehow much worse. It mostly found me in my bedroom, and I can't say how often the visits were, because I think the combination of extreme terror and neglect from my parents has blurred most of the timeline of my youth, but it was a lot. It was often enough to cause permanent damage to several of my body's systems due to the elevated cortisol levels. I know that much for certain. One time, I was at a rare sleepover at a neighbor's house, and I got up to pee in the middle of the night, determined not to wet someone else's bed. Blurry-eyed and still half asleep on my way back from the bathroom, I almost ran into a visitor peeking around the bathroom doorway, staring in at me. I'd never been that close to one before and I didn't know that they could find me at other places, which shot a new terror through me and sent me stumbling back on the slick tile floor to cower next to the bathtub. 
I'd always assumed they were just drawn to my home for some reason, and I'd be free from them when I moved out of my parents' house. But this confirmed that it was me they were after, and I'd never be safe from their gaze. The thought shot fear through me like electricity, and I was grateful I'd just emptied my bladder. I was so scared. The visitor held me hostage in that small, cold room for the rest of the night, just peering at me while I stifled my cries. Too terrified and embarrassed to call out for help or comfort of any kind. I eventually fell asleep on the bath mat, too afraid to venture into the hallway, even after the visitor retreated in the early morning. Then, the parents found me there the next morning. I hid my humiliation by pretending to be a sleepwalker. They followed me. What did that mean for my life? That night changed everything. I abandoned my dreams of having a normal life when I grew up and left home. I mourned the loss of a spouse and kids that would never be. I let go of my longing for full and peaceful nights of sleep and a brain that was rested enough to propel me towards some level of success. How could I have someone spend the night when there was constantly a looming threat of the visitors showing up? How could I subject innocent children to that level of persistent terror? Granted, maybe they just continued to be interested in me, but I couldn't take that risk. So I dragged myself through the bleak heaviness that was my daily life, trying my best to tolerate the visits, but never coming close to succeeding. I managed to keep my terror at a dull, persistent roar until the night that changed everything. It was a Thursday at 10.30 p.m., I had assumed that they'd never touch me, that they'd just carry out their horrifying surveillance, but leave me alone otherwise. Then one night, when I was 17, I woke with a start, which was common for someone who has had a four-year run-in with nocturnal visitors, and looked around the room to confirm that the angles of the shadows were changing, which, of course, they were. Then, as my morbid routine every time the visitors came... My eyes moved to the door to wait for the visitor to peer around the edge. I waited for several minutes for it to appear, and then began to wonder if because I was so used to the shadows shifting angles, I'd begun to imagine them moving when they weren't. Many minutes went by with no sign of a visitor, and I slowly started to drift to sleep. But then I felt the slightest compression on the blanket over my side, jolting me awake again. My eyes shot open, and to my horror, there were three long, thin fingers gently resting on my side through the covers, and they were attached to a long, thin arm that was attached to the naked, gray body of a visitor. I'd never seen both enormous black eyes before at the same time, and staring into simultaneously and at such a close range was what I imagined it feels like to be at the edge of a black hole, knowing you were about to become nothing and powerless to stop it or comprehend how it's possible to come in contact with such endless horror. How anything is possible in this monstrous galaxy. The raw fear that came from the visitor's touch electrified all of my limbs. I bolted out of bed and passed the visitor, and out of my house and into my car. I drove in a blind panic and didn't stop. I drove and drove through the night and into the next day, and I never looked back. The first several months were a blur of living in my car and stealing what I needed, which was everything, considering I left the house in a pair of pajamas and no shoes. I'd ended up in the high desert of New Mexico, and eventually found an abandoned hunting cabin to hide in while I figured out my next step. 
No one ever came to claim the cabin, and so I stayed on. After a few months, I allowed a sliver of hope to sneak in through some forgotten part of my brain as the visitors didn't come for the first few nights, and then weeks, and into months. It seemed they hadn't followed me, and I was starting to sleep for the first time in a half of a decade, and it was glorious. After two years, I won't go so far as to say I was happy, but I found a new contentment in my semi-solitude, as the fear that had gripped me for so long started to melt away ever so slowly. I would still jump awake at night and scan the shadows in the room for the telltale shift, but I didn't feel constantly wound tight with fear and anticipation of when the next visit would be and what it all meant. I forgot to mention the existential crisis that comes with being visited, but it's beyond comprehension and not something anyone, let alone a teenager, should have to grapple with. The who and how and why of the situation is enough to drive you to an early death at your own hand. But I digress. I didn't spend a lot of time wondering why the visitors hadn't followed me, and instead settled into the vast and lonely new world I'd fallen into. I made my meager living working for a rancher nearby, and had to drive over an hour to the nearest town for supplies, which I did as infrequently as possible. There was no distraction or TV or 88.3 The Shine or any radio at all, really. The only radio station I'd ever heard along that drive was a faint and wavering voice of a small-town preacher that cut in and out for a minute as I passed through the valley. But otherwise, it was a perfect stretch of nothing for miles and miles in every direction. I prayed every night that they'd never be able to find me in my desert foothill oasis, and the years rolled on, and my prayers worked. No visitors. It's been years since the angles of the shadows shifted, or I felt my bladder start to loosen, or I had to endure the hateful stare of their endless eyes. But then yesterday, something changed. I don't know what it means yet, but I passed a team of men assembling something massive and metal on the way into town, and pulled over to ask them what they were building. They didn't know how to explain exactly what the company they work for does, but they said that people have phones now that don't require a telephone pole or cord of any kind, and you can take them anywhere you go. You can call from anywhere, too. You can call from anywhere, too, as long as there is a special tower nearby to transmit the signal, and they were building one of those towers. They're everywhere now, they said. A deep, arresting shiver traveled through my body when I heard that. My mind wandered back to the awful, blinking red that hypnotized me through my bedroom window every night, and another shock of cold clarity ripped through me and into my soul. The on-off, 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 of red blinking in the black sky outside the window of the bedroom of a doomed child. This story was written by Courtney Eck and Ryan Ellis and narrated by Kieran Regan. For more stories that haunt as well as a behind the scenes look at what we do and why we do it, you can join our Patreon at patreon slash please leave pod. You can follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at please leave pod. Our email is please leave pod at gmail.com and our website is please leave pod.com. This has been a Please Leave Media production.